Hello and welcome to Vibrant Lives podcast, formerly Amanda's Wellbeing podcast. This podcast is dedicated to health and well-being, featuring interviews with experts in the fields of nutrition, physical and mental health, and my 5-minute food fact series. I'm Amanda Hayes, your host. I'm a lawyer turned nutritionist, and I have a deep curiosity about living a healthy, active, and fulfilling life, which I would call a vibrant life and sharing what I learn with you on this podcast. Before I introduce today's guest, I will mention that although I will often be speaking with experts, any information or advice provided in Vibrant Lives podcast is not intended to be used to treat or prevent injuries or medical conditions, and it is never a substitute for advice from your own health professionals. Today, I am here with Erin Nimi Longhurst, a British-Japanese author whose work has been featured in the BBC, Vogue, Stylist, El Mundo and El Vietnam. She is also the author of two gorgeous books. The first is Japonisma, Ikigai, Forest Bathing, Wabi Sabi and more. It explores the Japanese art of finding contentment through practical tips and tricks to live a healthier, happier and more thoughtful life. Her second book is called Omoyari, and it is about the Japanese art of compassion. I absolutely adore Erin's books, not only for the content, but also for the presentation. So it is my great pleasure to chat with Erin today about her books and what we can learn from the Japanese culture. Hi, Erin. It's a real pleasure to have you with me today on Vibrant Lives podcast. So Erin, you describe yourself as British Japanese. You grew up with a Japanese mother and an English father. To me, that sounds like a wonderful gift because you have the insight into two cultures. But more importantly, I'd like to hear about what that was like for you. So where did you spend your childhood? So my father is English and my mother is Japanese, but my father worked for the foreign office. So I'd move a lot you know, every few years, really. I was born in the UK uh, and then lived in Seoul, South Korea until I was about two. And then after that, I lived in Japan um, for several years. So until I was about nine, where my mother is from as well. Mm -hmm. So very close by to my Japanese relatives who are mostly based uh, around Tokyo. And then when I was around 10, I moved to New York as my father was working for the UN. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, would spend obviously a lot of time in the cultural melting pot that was New York, yeah, but great. I would go back to Japan every, uh, you know, every summer, every, every winter. And so uh, kind of all over the place, but yes, between um, Japan, the US and the UK. Yeah, that, well, that explains your accent to me. <laughs> It's we lived in Hong Kong for several years and people there have this uh, it's almost like a a combination of UK US uh it's yeah it's a, a sort of an international accent and yeah that's the how international school it. accent um, it is very yeah. much so mm. and where are you living now Erin I'm currently living in London uh, so I'd actually moved back to New York a year ago and then COVID hit and I made the decision to move back to the UK but my mother currently lives in uh, Honolulu and my extended family are as I mentioned in in Tokyo. Right okay so Erin do you feel more aligned to one culture than another or does it depend a bit on where you are? It's a really interesting question and something I've been uh, thinking a lot about this week in particular. I think there's been a lot of, uh, particularly out of the US, a lot of talk about this, you know, anti kind of Asian sentiment and how I kind of fit into that. And I really feel strongly tied to my Japanese heritage. You know, my mother, you know, we speak Japanese together. We actually she used to pretend she didn't speak English. So I would, you know, learn, you know, I I would be more fluent. Um, But I've always found myself in the role of 
translator, whether it was kind of translating things for my Japanese relatives or doing the same for my British relatives. So I feel very much culturally both English and Japanese, um, yeah. but kind of, so not necessarily more than one over another. And I think that's kind of what led to a lot of what I started writing about, which yes. really is about bringing it to, uh, you know, one culture really into another. Um, so it, it also does depend on where I, where I am. I think when I'm in Japan, I dream more in Japanese and mm-hmm. I sleep talk more in Japanese. Um, but I not necessarily aligned to one culture. I definitely feel strongly that I have yeah. roots in both. Oh, that's wonderful. I like the sound of that. Do you consciously or unconsciously make adaptions when you're in a certain place? So the, for example, the way you dress or the way you speak, does that change depending on your, who you're with, either your Japanese family or your English family or friends? I think I do. I know I perhaps don't see it in myself as much, but I have a younger sister who is uh, just uh, a year younger than me. And when she's in Japan or speaking in Japanese, she's a lot more um, reserved and maybe a bit more shy than she is usually. So while I don't necessarily see it in myself, I'm sure I do the exact same thing um, and adapt depending on on the context. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure you. it's just something you're so used to doing you may not even notice that you do it. Erin, your um, last name is Nimi or your, is it your middle name or your last name? So my parents uh, aren't married. So my mother's last name is Nimi and my father's last name is Longhurst. So I okay. have both. Um, so Ooh. when I'm in Japan, all my documents are, you know, Nimi, Erin. Um, so that's my Japanese last name. Okay. And what does it mean? So the characters mean uh, new and beautiful. So the, you know, you use the first character when you're describing something that's new or, you know, atarashi is, is the word, but um, the character itself, uh, when it's in the context of my name, mm-hmm. is pronounced like ni. And me means, yeah, beautiful. So the characters of my you know, Erin, um, which yes. is my name in Japanese as well, kind of mean uh, the characters for England, but also bell, like a ringing bell. So Erin, you're an author, you've written two books, and I'd love to talk about them. And I'll just paint a bit of a picture, a bit of background for our listeners. So the Japanese culture is obviously an ancient one with deep traditions, and it has many rituals that pertain to aspects of daily life. And I think from reading your books and other books about Japan, many of the Japanese customs are like potential antidotes, I think, to our hyper-busy, crazy, consumerist lifestyle. And examples might be the tea ceremony or taking time to clean your home and keep it organised. And we know a lot more about that because of Marie Kondo, of course. So your two books you've written help us learn from Japanese culture and traditions and apply those to our daily life. Your first book is Japonisma, which was published in 2018, and I believe it was published as The Little Book of Japanese Contentments in the US. And your second book is Omoyari, which was published last year. So Erin, what inspired you to write these books? I... I think what really drew me to write the books really came from a desire to want to share these practices and traditions that I grew up with. Mm-hmm. It, you know, the whole process really started because I had begun writing a travel and sort of lifestyle blog about my time in London. And as I was writing it, I start sharing recipes and a lot of what I would share were you know drawn from things my mother cooked for me growing up or things that I learned from my Japanese grandfather um, and my grandmother who you know would do calligraphy and for me it was second nature and what I grew up with and seemingly quite obvious but over time there was a lot of interest in the things I was writing about and actually a publisher to reach out to me and say, we're looking to commission a book about Japanese lifestyle and 
what people might be able to bring in their own lives and would you be interested in in writing it so that's how japanism sort of came about and in many ways that was a much easier book to write i think it had you know had years to kind of of material really to draw mm-hmm. on from my blog uh, and i think the the second book omoyari which originally was supposed to launch around the time of the tokyo olympics which unfortunately oh, right. was postponed because of the mm-hmm. pandemic um that was a lot more challenging for me to write because i think i didn't have the kind of years of thoughts and ideas and materials that i had had for the first um but that's really kind of what inspired me to share it yes. is this interest that people had in traditions and things that i kind of grew up with yeah i think um your second book omoyari is perhaps a little bit more subtle i'm not sure that some of the concepts in there um but anyway we will talk about each of your books but before we do i just wanted to ask you about the illustrations because they are so beautiful they're done by rio takamasa so how did that collaboration come about so with the books it was really important to me that we incorporate you know really strong visual elements to mm. really bring the subject matter to you know visually to uh, a wider audience and i think it was really important that we had an illustrator that was japanese um and very kind of stylistically you know in many ways the illustrations are so simple but so beautiful they and are they you know that was a kind of collaboration that came around really from from my publishers but mm-hmm. it was really important for me that we kind of had a japanese illustrator involved in that process and i think you know i absolutely love his work and i'm so you know happy that yeah we've been able to collaborate the, it, the illustrations really are beautiful and i'll also say that the paper the books are printed on is lovely it's it's thick and it just just looks so and feels so nice to touch and and hold it would be nice as a coffee table book just putting it out there <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about japanisme so what does that term mean so the title really comes from a term that is used in art and mm. it was really used to describe this kind of western appreciation and fascination with japanese culture and i think when we were trying to come up with a name for the book and the title for the first book it was around the time when all these other concepts were coming out kind of globally so um you know in sort of Scandinavia and you know Hugen all these things and because there are so many different concepts and they're so varied i guess in Japanese yes. culture we decided on this title because it really to us kind of encapsulated this appreciation and um yeah i guess admiration for Japanese culture and that's essentially how we um landed on it. So it's not necessarily the correct dictionary definition of the term, but for me it's really about an appreciation of Japanese art and culture yeah, and lifestyle. I mean that's that's how, that's how I read it. I I think it, I think um it's a French word. I'll double check this. And and as you said, I um Claude Monet was um very interested in Japanese art and prints and if you go to his place in Giverny it, his house is full of Japanese artworks so yes I think there was a real appreciation or still is always has been for Japanese art. So how did you structure the book? Can you give us a bit of an overview of Japanisme and how it's set out? Definitely. So again when I was thinking about how to describe all these different sort of because we have practices but also philosophies and concepts within it and the way i decided really to describe it was to divide the book into three parts so the first is really about bringing these 
philosophies and practices. So things like Wabi Sabi, um, which is kind of celebrating and finding beauty in imperfection. Mm-hmm. Um, so, all, and those kind of uh, philosophies ne- that aren't necessarily, they're more of a mindset. Yes. And so I wanted to um, talk about sort of kokoro, which is something a term that means kind of the heart and the mind and you know it's not this kind of mind body spirit separation it's sort of all uh in one mm-hmm. so that's the first uh, section of the book the second um which we call karada uh, which is body and so really ways in which you can embody some of these philosophies and practices and the second part of the book is very much more practical I think than the first so these are things that you can do so forest bathing flower arranging cooking um and so the reason I structured it that way is because I wanted it to be things that you can do you know Mm -hmm. and physically embody some of the philosophies that I introduced in the first section and then the third is kaizen which is habit forming um so how you can continue and make things I guess, persevere. Yes. I'd like to just dive into a couple of things in a little bit more detail. So kintsugi, so as an art form, what is it? So kintsugi is really tied to the art of tea ceremony. And so tea ceremony really is about harmony, beauty, tranquility and respect. And it's also really tied to this wider philosophy of wabi-sabi and finding beauty and imperfection and how things change over time and not to necessarily fight against it, which I Mm -hmm. think is very uh, instinctive um, in some societies, but to find beauty in the stillness and mindfulness in that moment. And so what Kintsugi is, um, it's a way of repairing broken ceramic using golden lacquer. So while you know, again, I'm I'm English. We have afternoon tea here, uh, and if you have a tea set, I think, you know, in Western or like British culture, if you have a chipped teacup, it might be considered to be imperfect and therefore mm. discarded or set aside or seen as not desirable. But in Japanese tea ceremony, having a teacup that has some kind of blemish or imperfection or scar, or in this case, something that has been fixed, and that. I guess imperfection is highlighted by the golden lacquer and, and you it's drawn kind of attention to it. And I think that's kind of reflective of a wider appreciation of, you know, finding beauty and acceptance in yes. what has come before. Uh, and so that's why I think I wanted to kind of bring it, you know, forward. And I also, I think it's, you know, since I wrote the book, there's been a lot more talk and interest in sort of sustainability and I think it is a really valuable lesson of you know things do have a use beyond you know if it does does break you know you can you can fix it um yeah and so that is what I wanted to kind of bring bring that uh, philosophy across yeah I think that's a really important thing for people who grow up in this consumerist society that we live in to try and understand and appreciate you know, life isn't perfect. So why should everything around us be perfect? What are some of the ways, Erin, that you apply kintsugi in your daily life? I think one way is physically, you know, uh, I have a kintsugi set and I think you also uh, might have. <laughs> I've, I've ordered one from Etsy to fix my favourite coffee mug. <laughs> and yeah, so I think it's just about I guess giving things a second chance in many ways, but also that applies to yourself as well. I think a lot of what makes you who you are comes from what's come before. And there's, you know, often pain and, you know, I think everyone has things in their past that they'd like Mm. to address or change. Um, But it's about finding strength from that. And it's of course more challenging for some than others, but, I think that is one one way of of finding kind of beauty and imperfection and finding lessons where you know you might not have been able to find them before. Yeah. Um, and then also I think, as I mentioned, you know, 
giving things and objects a second chance. So in my second book, and I, I know we'll get onto it in a moment, but um, I have a whole chapter on a concept called motainai, which is, you know, having this, you know, not wanting to waste anything and yeah. wanting to preserve something. And I think I'm a really big believer in, you know, leftovers or, you know, if I make a, you know, a broth of some kind, like what can I use that for in other dishes to bring that forward? And I think it's just about being and showing more respect to not only yourself, but your environment around you and the objects that you have. I think Mm. we are increasingly, you know, unable to deny things like you know, the the resources we have in the world and it's more important than ever to where we can. I know the the resources are finite and we need to be very conscious of that. But it sounds like being sustainable and resourceful are very much embedded deeply into the Japanese culture. It's something that you would do as a matter of course. One of the other concepts you talk about is shukanka. So this is about the Japanese approach of forming habits that you did touch on before. And there's a proverb that you quote in there, which I really love. And it says, beginning is easy, continuing is hard. So what are some of the ways, Erin, that you've observed Japanese people forming habits? How do they do that in Japan? A lot of what I wrote about was really inspired by my Japanese grandfather. So he was a very successful businessman but in addition to that at the weekends he would go you know he had a a house in in the countryside and was also a sort of temple elder and in many ways would do things that I don't you know you never see them in these kind of like CEO profiles you see out of Silicon Valley you know you he would like sweep the temple floors from him, I really learned, I guess, mindfulness and, and mm-hmm. how important it is. You know, every school child in Japan will learn how to read and write because they have to repeat, you know, a, a series of prescriptive characters every single day. So it's kakijun, it's like the order of strokes and how you how you write things. And with that, it's about really small changes that happen over a really long period of time rather than, you know, this kind of extreme, like cramming something on the day before. And I I felt that is such an important thing to take away because one, it's about practicing patience and, you know, being, you know, respectful and not too sort of harsh on yourself, but, you know, it's about just the small incremental changes over a really long period of time that can really make sort of dramatic changes. And with that and habit forming, I definitely kind of learned a lot from my Japanese relatives. So, you know, my grandfather was very into, you know, he had a very small garden, but was tended to it really, you know, little and often. Um, And I like to think that I now do the same sort of things I think I like to to do things incrementally over a really long period of time and that's the only way for me that anything's ever stuck I Um, really like that um, example of your grandfather because whilst he might have had a you know high-powered job he still took the time to do those tasks that some people might think are menial like sweeping the um gravel at the temple and that it it's a, a sign of mindfulness as you say and respect for everyone else that goes to the temple and I think to me it sounds like it also keeps one's ego in check because it's paying attention to every aspect of your life not just you know your your job so I really like the sound of that definitely and I think um one thing is you know so that you get it in the art of sort of flower arranging as well and it's yes. not you know with flower arranging you don't necessarily it's not prescriptive you don't go in with like these are the flowers I'm going to arrange and this is how I'm going to do it like you let the process organically come to you and a lot of you know famous Japanese like army generals practice flower arranging which you couldn't I don't really see that um in any other context but I think 
doing that really brings people's attention to where they are in a specific moment in time but also Mm -hmm. you know the time of year and what's going on in the world around you and I think those types of uh, mindful activities can really bring a lot of benefit and it keeps you tied in with the real world doesn't it instead of being too focused on your work or your army career or whatever it is it it takes you outside that and makes you appreciate the small but important things like beautiful flowers and nature and things like that Erin your second book Omoyari the Japanese art of compassion which is a gorgeous title you say right up front in the book that omiyari is very difficult to define and I guess there's no direct uh, English translation for that so Could you give us a description of what it means? Omoyari for me is really about acting with empathy and sort of preemptively acting with empathy. But Mm -hmm. in a way that's not, that is, I guess, inherently selfless because a lot of these moments of omoyari that you see in Japanese culture don't have a specific individual or person in mind. It's often an abstract person, you know, might be like a someone who else who is using the space in the future. Yes. Um, that you might not know, and they're not not necessarily, you know, a customer or anything like that. And it was such an interesting uh concept for me to try and articulate and translate. And one of the ways that I did it was asking people who had been to Japan and had experienced it to share their stories to really bring some of these things uh, to life. But one example that I talk about early on in the book is around the uh, World Cup. So Japan were playing against Colombia and it was this, you know, surprise sort of upset because Japan won, but, and it was an away game. uh, And actually after their victory, the Japanese fans stayed behind to clear up the stadium behind them. And I think that for me just so clearly articulates what the concept is about and it's about okay respect for the space um, around you and for others and I think in many ways in Japan it comes out of necessity it's such a densely populated Mm. and rather small country and so that kind of cultural aspect I think maybe does you know spring from necessity but I think it is really important to respect each other and and act kindly towards each other I think sometimes you know I think increasingly divisive the world we live in and I think for me it's like a um a way to you know try and encourage empathy and kindness and compassion and harmony I think we all have to remember that we live as part of a society being kind and respectful I think makes things work a lot more easily So Erin, you gave the example of the soccer match. I really love that because as you said, that was a very clear illustration of what the concept means. How do you practice it in in your daily life? This is a really interesting question um, because I also, one of the things that I really think in the book, you know, I, a lot of the traditions and practices and concepts I talk about for example, like calligraphy or tea ceremony. And my family are essentially, you know, have spent decades of their lives training in these subjects. And I've got a very, in many ways, kind of surface understanding of kind of all of them. Um, But it's really about, as we kind of said before, like habit forming and practice, Mm. Um, but also trying to find that balance. I think, in the first book, I talk about ikigai, which is the con- you know concept meaning kind of purpose, and people get it from you know their family or their home or their work, and it's the kind of intersection of all these different facets of mm-hmm. our life. Um, and then with omoyari, I think it's about acting for compassion to others, but also to yourself as well. We're still in lockdown here in London and it's been, you know, incredibly hard. And I've yeah. really found the last few months uh, really challenging. Um, and then one of the things I think trying to think for res- with kind of these feelings of respect, not only to, you know, myself and I was trying to figure out what I was missing um, recently in, in my life. And I kind of found that actually one of the things I do get a lot of, 
inspiration and energy from is, you know, giving back to the community and volunteering. And I found being in, uh, you know, trying to be safe and, and not having contact with people, it's really challenging to do that. But in the last week, you know, I found there's a local, um, you know, community building group Mm -hmm. and I you know was like okay what am I missing at the moment and I was like I think I'm missing like giving back and talking to people that aren't just you know people I work with or my friends you know I guess really connecting as we mentioned before like to the real world and you know I was really exhausted a really long day at work and I think reaching out and just being like I'm really looking to volunteer and give back and we had kind of a you know, I joined one of those kind of neighborhood um, voluntary kind of community meetings and I found it so valuable. And I was like, this is what I was missing. And yes, I just need to, you know, practice finding that balance and taking yes. a step back and looking and like, what, what part of my life am I missing at the moment? And sometimes it's as easy as, you know, I think my home needs addressing and I need to fix, you know, various things in the house or I need to be eating more vegetables this week or, you know, going out for a walk more, but, you know, having that kind of sense of empathy and and compassion to yourself as well. Like how don't talk to yourself, like you're being mean, like talk to yourself, like you talk to your friends. Um, And I think that's one of the ways that I've been trying to practice. Mm, So what I'm hearing is kindness, really kindness to yourself, kindness to others, thinking about others. Following on with that theme, one of the chapters in your book is polite conscientiousness, which is exactly the kind of thing you've been describing. And the way some people practice that in Japan is through things like tea ceremonies and punctuality and the presentation of gifts. So tell me about the presentation of gifts. Yeah, so the chapter is called Tene. So it's doing things, I guess, with purpose and intention and to the best that they can be I think that's what TNA means it's about paying attention to detail um, and doing things properly and not taking the shortcut Mm -hmm. and I think it's really again tempting to just try and take the easy route and you know just go on a crash course juice cleanse or you know whatever it might be Um, but TNA is about doing things with thought but paying attention to the details and I think one aspect in the book is really about you know gift giving and the presentation of gifts um so I share uh, a technique of you know how to how to wrap gifts and tea ceremony I think is really about tene and doing things with precision and you know, doing things deliberately. Uh, And when you're engaging in a tea ceremony, you know, the host will have thought about, you know, everything, like the number of Mm -hmm. guests, what time of year it is, what calligraphy they're going to have on the wall, what flower arrangement they're going to, to serve with it. And I think that is a way of, you know, these paying attention to these little details, it just, you can appreciate beauty more when you practice it I think um and you can see it in others as well when you approach your own life in that way so the kind of politeness and respect towards each other um I think is one of the things that I wanted to to bring across and it also demonstrates great generosity not just in terms of giving a gift or inviting friends over for a tea ceremony but really devoting your time to other people because as you say doing things deliberately it takes a lot more effort to wrap a present really beautifully than just to quickly shove it in a bag or something so I think people must appreciate all of that and recognize the care and attention that's been given the other thing that I really loved reading about because I've seen them around but never really understood the meaning behind them was the thousand paper cranes, senbazaru. So in Japanese culture, what is the crane a symbol of? A crane, um, which I actually hadn't thought about really until I kind of sat down to write, but they mate for life. So it's really about um, fidelity and I guess, you know, they also live a long life. So there is a 
proverb that is, you know, a crane lives for a thousand years, which obviously isn't true, but that's kind of to demonstrate, you know, how long and sustained their lifespans are. So I think it's about commitment and love and, Hmm. you know, things. Weathering the storm together. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Something that's um, really enduring. And the thousand paper cranes is something that you make with origami, which is the art of, you know, folding paper in a decorative way. Yeah, I think Sembazaru means a thousand of these. And the amount of dedication and persistence it takes to sit and fold them um, you know, again, it's a it's a commitment, but it's also a physical embodiment of appreciation or goodwill. Mm-hmm. And so people are often given these at weddings or yeah. if someone is unwell. If you are giving someone um, some cranes, do you always have to give them a thousand at one time or can you give them a few cranes or how does it work? Yeah, I mean, you can just give them a few cranes, but I think the 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 thousand it, it just has a very specific, um, yeah, connotation. It's like yes. just having such good will or wishing mm. good fortune on on someone, um, and so I think it's just like a really extreme uh, example of that kind of appreciation that you have for someone that you have done. So this. it's and like think- the ultimate gift, say, at a wedding. <laughs> Um, a thousand paper cranes have you ever done it yourself I so I've done it as part of like a um you know as in like as family or as like a school you know when I was younger um uh, a friend I went to primary school with um unfortunately had a brain tumor so our class kind of sat and folded them together because we all wanted her to get better Mm. um and thankfully she was she was okay. Uh, and I actually had started at the beginning of lockdown. So I, the first sort of worldwide lockdown, I was in New York uh, where I was working and my partner was supposed to have moved out there and he wasn't able to, oh, he, no. he's a doctor, but wouldn't have been able to practice out in the yeah. U S cause he's trained in the UK. And I, around that time I started making like folding them um, because it was something to do. And it was, it just, every single crane, I was like thinking about a certain person when mm-hmm. I was, you know, a different person when I was, when I was fix, uh, creating it. So I didn't quite get to a thousand because I had to eventually move, but um, <laughs> I in, I ended up moving back to, to London, but it was something that I found really comforting actually. Yes. Um, so do you find it quite a relaxing process? Yeah, I yeah. I do. I think it's um, you know, I've just been you know folding cranes since I was really tiny. So yeah. something that I it comes sort of second nature to second me. Second nature, um, and it makes me think of when I was growing up watching my grandmother. She used to knit socks all the time, and she just was always with her knitting needles doing it. She didn't even need to look. She just did it. <laughs> so yeah. maybe it's a bit like that. You've done it so many times that you just know your body knows what to do or your hands know what to do. And Erin, there was one thing I was thinking about when I was preparing some questions for you. I was thinking, I wonder if almost the reverse case could work. If a book about Britishness and British culture, do you think anyone in Japan would be interested in such a book? I'm just curious. I definitely think so. I mean, because yeah. when I, when my books have come out, you know, my Japanese relatives have bought, you know, even though they don't necessarily read English, they've, you know, been very supportive of it. And that is always their first question is like, when are you going to write a book about um, British culture and Britishness in, in Japan? And it's so interesting to me because I think the Japanese culture was, it was easier for me to write about because Japan was so isolated, I guess, from yes. the rest of the world for such a long period of time. And England and particularly London, where I live, is such a melting pot it of is, cultures isn't it? that That's I think true. my experience would be a very slim um, reflection of what actually British culture re- is really like. Yeah. Um, but I'd love to yeah, do something about my own experience as well. I yeah. think. Oh, that's a um, really good point, because the 
the Japanese culture is, it's really unique, isn't it? Whereas, as you say, the UK is, is a melting pot. I was thinking along the lines of things like the British afternoon tea and the stiff upper lip and, you know, <laughs> those kind of images you have or one has about um, British people and British culture. I mean, but I'd love to do a book about, I mean, I'd love to do a book about afternoon tea and like a roast yeah. dinner. and <laughs> All those know, things, fine. I know. <laughs> Uh, you do a lot of things apart from writing your books. Uh, you work at a digital agency, is that correct? Yeah, so I was actually the first person that started working at that agency almost six years ago now. Um, but it's we help organizations that have a social good purpose, so mostly mm -hmm. charities and nonprofits on how they can better tell stories online and, and do things like fundraising. And sure. it's been so interesting because I've done a lot of, you know, soul searching, I guess, the past few years, because I do get so much value from my work because of the organizations that I work with. But, you know, I think writing as well as can be a full-time uh, job in itself. And I've come, with, I've got a really good balance now in which I work part-time with them and then part-time I can, pursue my writing and all these other opportunities that I'm really lucky to be able to take the time to pursue um but really enjoy my work I think it's very varied and I really just love working with the types of organizations yeah. that I do so at the moment I'm working with you know the UNHCR which is the High Commission for Refugees and you know these charities in the UK that are combating domestic abuse and those types of you know, I do get a lot of my energy and enthusiasm from yeah, so from important that work social as well. issues. And I mean, these days, the reality is people need to know or organisations need to know how to use social media to their benefit, because that's how they reach people. So I believe you're also a trained private chef. Yes. So it was actually one of those things where this was always a dream of mine. And I decided a few years ago to you know, because I was always a keen cook at home, but I wanted to get yeah. that sort of formal training and formal qualification. And I signed up to go, you know, part-time culinary school, you know, evenings and weekends for, and the week before I started, I got an email from my publisher being like, <laughs> would you be interested in writing a book? So when I was writing the book, I was, you know, working full-time in the evenings oh going to goodness. culinary school. And then like just really random hours writing um my book but I really love cooking I think for me it's uh meditation um for me I just love it and I before all this was able to do things yeah. like supper clubs uh and well, hopefully like you'll that. be able um, to do so that again do you do you like cooking yeah. all different types of cuisine or are you more drawn to Japanese style food or well the reason I decided to do this culinary school and again it's you know very traditional kind of French cuisine I suppose yeah. is what I'm trained in but at home I always you know my mother is, was the cook growing up and I always made Japanese food and that's what I'm you know and I think my partner is always you know I think he's eating a lot more Japanese you know, Asian food now that we live together but that's what I grew up with and yeah. that's no I know how to cook that like but it was all the stuff like you know, roast potatoes or like a roast dinner and that kind of traditional Western food that I didn't really have as much confidence in doing. And so I wanted to go to culinary school to learn essentially, yeah. you know, Western cooking, but I do really enjoy all different types of cuisine. Um, a very good friend of oh mine is a Lebanese chef. And I think from him, I've learned so many amazing recipes and I have so many cookbooks. I, my partner didn't quite understand until we moved in together. You know, I, I had about six boxes. Everything I moved from New York, yeah, all fit into six boxes. Three of those were cooking implements. You know, two of those were cookbooks or just other books. And there was only one box for clothes. And he was just like, I... I was like, we're going to need a few bookshelves. And I don't think he fully realized until my stuff arrived. Well, he's very he lucky. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> and you're also a Muji brand ambassador. Is that correct? Yes. I've been so lucky with them because 
you know, Muji is a brand that I grew yep. up with in Japan. You know, I've always had their, you know, bath uh, salts and pajamas. And when Omoi Yeti came out, they were really supportive of the book and they wanted to kind of do a promotion uh, with the book in their stores, which was incredible because, you know, they, they don't know. sell books yeah. really. Um, and that led to kind of this partnership. So I help promote and collaborate on some of their product range, which really fits in with a lot of the yeah. themes that I cover. There's a lot of uh, things in Muji that are wonderful for around the home. And every time I go in there, there's something that I never knew that I needed. Erin, to, to wrap things up, who inspires you? I think growing up, as I mentioned, I was really inspired by my Japanese grandfather. I think I get a lot of my work ethic from him and a lot of the ways I unwind and, and relax. I think I've pretty much just carbon copy. But day to day, I think my mother, you know, we're really close. We speak a lot all, all the time and she's really an incredible person. She was a, you know, single mother and she has she's very brave um and also kind of inquisitive and uh you know also a very keen mm -hmm. um foodie as well so that is you know I guess a person um that yeah, they kind of wonderful. inspire me the final question I'd like to ask is one that I ask all of my guests and if you could recommend two things that all people could do to improve their well-being what would they be? They can be anything at all. That's such a good question. One thing that I'm a true believer in is having a cup of tea, but in a very like mm -hmm. ritualized way, I suppose is how I'd put it. So, you know, I have a whole chapter on, on tea ceremony. Um, but I think, and the same is true necessarily with like coffee. And I think um, one thing that, I think we all do too much of, and I'm guilty of this myself is, you know, you drink tea or coffee because you want that yes. immediate caffeine hit. But the benefit of like a true coffee break comes from like detaching and unwinding and taking your mind off of something. So if there is a way that you can don't do it in a rushed hmm. way, you know, like have the, you know, get your favorite cup out and make it, you know, take the time, like do things slowly. I think it's such a benefit. And I think, you know, a lot of people I know are working from home at the moment. And I essentially, you know, it invested in really nice, like cup and saucer set. And, you know, it's such a silly thing in many ways, but it's, yeah, yeah. Just taking small breaks. So that is, the first um and then the second is really forest bathing That's or shinrin yoku which is what I talk about in the book and one of the only things we can do at the moment in London anyway or in the UK is you know our daily walk and shinrin yoku really is about going for a walk and immersing yourself in nature but in a way that isn't following a set path you know, you're not doing there, you're going there for a purpose. It really is just to go and, you know, immerse yourself in nature and take in some of the natural phenomena that's around you. So I do talk a lot about these different words yes. that don't have a direct translation, but komorebi is one of my favorite words, which is the light that filters through the leaves in a tree. So you're saying go into the forest or, or nature and just notice it and be present and not necessarily going there to go for a walk or do your exercise or I mean I, I guess that could be part of it but it's more about noticing your surroundings yeah and I'm, I'm just going in I guess without like a necessarily like intent or purpose and you know I have recently started you know running a lot more and that's very different for me than going and just you know appreciating and taking in the natural surroundings and I think mm -hmm. it's been so important like now more than before uh you know just have that connection so yeah. I think those would be my two kind of things that your I would suggest people tips. can do to yeah and what's your favorite tea do you have a favorite tea 
So if I'm having it with milk, it's uh, Yorkshire tea. Um, my British family have uh, strong Yorkshire roots. So that is my, you know, builder's tea, as you say here. Um, but my Japanese tea is hojicha. So it's like a roasted green tea. Um, and that's my favorite. Is that the one with the roasted rice grains in it or is that a different one no that's genmaicha oh yes I love that Um, one which is also really yeah yeah Mm. Um, so Erin if someone listening to this podcast would like to uh, follow you or see what you you do what's the best way for them to do that so I have a website which is erinneemilonghurst.com so Nimi is N double I M I, which is always really confusing for people when I'm giving it over the phone uh, to do whatever. Um, and then my, I'm very active, I think, on Instagram. So at Erin Nimi, uh, one word, and also the same handle on Twitter as well. Great. I'll put links to all of that in the show notes. And thank you so much for chatting with me today, Erin. It was such a pleasure to talk to you. It was really, um, I just enjoyed so much hearing your perspective on your books and why you wrote them. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And that was the very lovely and accomplished British Japanese author, Erin Nimi Longhurst, sharing her insights into aspects of Japanese culture that bring contentment and good health. Thank you for listening today. I hope you found today's interview interesting or inspiring. If you did, please share the podcast with your friends. And if you could take a minute to leave a rating on Apple Podcasts, it will help people find my podcast. Please follow me on Instagram at vibrant underscore lives underscore podcast. Also, feel free to DM me or contact me via my website at www.amandaswellbeingpodcast.com. You can go to the contacts page there. And if you'd like to suggest topics you'd like to learn more about or people you'd like to hear me interviewed, I will do my best to deliver that to you. If you enjoy my podcast and would like to support it, you can visit the donate page on my website or you can go to the bookshop page on my website. If you click the Amazon link in my bookshop, at no extra cost to you, I receive a small commission when you buy a book. So I'd be very grateful if you decide to do that. Thank you so much for tuning in. Eat well, move well, think well.